0: from the heart of our nation's capital here's family research council president tony perkins
1: welcome to washington watch my name is joseph Backholm. my pleasure to be sitting in for tony today glad that you have joined us on the program I want to remind you that the website is tonyperkins.com, where you can find this and every program. Today on the program, the latest on ta- Taiwan and China. China is rattling their sabers, sending some troubling signs. What does this mean for Taiwan? What does it mean for the United States? In addition, a psychiatrist with 30 years' experience talks about whether the current approach to treating children with gender dysphoria is helpful or not we'll talk about that today as well in addition at the end of the program how should christians be thinking and talking about the let's go brandon phenomenon should we participate or not but first for the headlines White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tried to strike optimistic tones yesterday after the House delayed the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill and after the Senate adjourned until Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern time, confirming that President Biden's Build Back Better package won't be brought up for a vote until next week at the earliest. In a written statement yesterday, Saki said that the administration is confident that Democrats will pass both bills in the coming days. But do things just appear closer than they really are? Joining me now to talk about all of this and more is Travis Weber, Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs. Travis, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much. Well, first, give me your your high-level take. Is this going to pass or not?
2: Yeah, it increasingly appears that uh, it's not going to pass in in present form due to the Progressive Caucus digging in their heels and really running the show. You have Congresswoman Jayapal and her cohorts on the Progressive Caucus calling the shots at this point, telling Pelosi and Biden that. This is not good enough for them, and it's important to remember what exactly we're dealing with here. The Senate has already passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, $1.2 trillion, dealing with matters that stretch the limits of what we should define and can define as infrastructure, as most people would think about it. So this is the bill that's passed by the Senate. This is the bill the House was supposed to vote on yesterday, yet— Nancy Pelosi had to delay that vote because she did not have enough Democratic support for that bo- that, that vote and that bill. Why? Not because um, it, you know, it, was, it, it was satisfactory. It was not progressive enough. It did not have enough spending for a significant sector of House Democrats. This really shows the, the point that our country's at when... The Democrats in the House, $1.2 trillion is nowhere close to enough money for them. They want a whole lot more. They want radical social policies in the reconciliation bill. They want a significant price tag attached to that bill before they agree to support the $1.2 trillion bill, which otherwise is not enough for them. So, so yes, things are delayed for now. We don't know when we're going to get agreement on um, on a, a number and on text for a reconciliation vote and thereby uh, agreement on the $1.2 trillion infrastructure vote, bill that the Senate has already passed. We're very much in a wait and see approach. But at this point, President Biden has ventured overseas uh, without an agreement. And uh, Leader Pelosi and Biden are without um, a plan at this point uh, to, to come to that agreement uh, anytime uh, very soon, even though they're working on it. So, Travis, do you think that the White House's
1: optimism is warranted? Are they going to get something done or is it
2: spin? Because we really don't know, given the defection of the progressives. I think uh, there's there's a lot of spin going on here. Of course, they have to put on an optimistic face. They can't come out and admit that um, the progressive caucus and JIPEL are literally calling the shots at this point, which is what is actually going on them and uh, Senator Sanders over in the Senate who wants uh, similar policies uh, are the ones who hold the leverage and are dictating to the American people what uh, should pass for infrastructure at this point much like the Taliban ended up calling the shots when the U.S. tucked tail and and left Afghanistan. So we're very much in in a position, regardless of what the White House says about this, where the progressive leadership in the House is, is in effect, telling Pelosi what to do. Now, I know they're working on a number, trying to come to some agreement, but we're dealing in the realm of trillions here. The latest number we're seeing floated is that we might land at $1.75 trillion as an agreement number uh, in the reconciliation bill, uh, isn't t- on top of the 1.2 trillion dollar in the, the Senate-passed bill that was already, you know, passed and in, in which the House Democrats are then agreeing to vote on. So we're looking at numbers in the trillions. This is all down from the 3.5 trillion dollar number in that reconciliation bill that we initially, um, you know, had had been looking seeing months ago. Now remember, this is on top of around six trillion dollars in federal spending that has uh, been authorized, been passed since the start of the pandemic. So we're looking at uh, more and more government spending in the realm of, of something uh, close to $10 million. When this is all said and done, we've already spent six and we're um, $10 trillion. We're looking at spending somewhere close to $10 trillion once we get some sort of agreement on this reconciliation bill, whether that's $1.75 trillion packed with radical social policies uh, or some other number. And then you add that to the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill the Senate passed, which the House is then uh, conceivably going to pass. We're looking at trillions and trillions of dollars in government spending as we approach this winter. Now, Travis, this is clearly a priority for the Biden administration
1: at this point. Uh, he at least wants this to be the, the defining part of his presidency to this point, as opposed to some of the other things that have been happening. So he's been selling this pretty hard to the American public. And I want to play a clip of what he is saying Uh The justification for passing this is he believes this is why people voted for him. Let's play that clip, and then I want to give you a chance to respond.
3: This agenda, the agenda that's in these bills, is what 81 million Americans voted for. More people voted than any time in American history. That's what they voted for. Their voices deserve to be heard, not denied, or worse, ignored. Travis, is that
1: true?
2: Is that why people voted for President Biden? Well, if, only if 81 million people voted for a bill packed with radical social policies and trillions of dollars in government spending. I don't know. I, but that seems like quite a stretch to claim that 81 million agreed to vote for a $3.5 trillion bill in which uh, there is a number of radical policies, including government funded daycare, in which your young children are going to be funneled into... Government supported daycare and childcare systems that are obligated to follow all the strings that the federal government now attaches to their funding. And, uh, you know, these programs are going to be increased, incentivized, and we're going to see more and more of them. More and more children are going to end up in them. And I think everyone can agree at this point, looking around our country, at uh, the policies that are being implemented by government bureaucrats in educational systems that no parent at this point should want their children in an unchecked government program. Yet That's the kind of thing that is going to be grown by significant magnitude under President Biden's plan that uh, he would pack into the reconciliation vehicle. Well,
1: unsurprisingly, President Biden is very optimistic about what he thinks this means or could mean for the future of the country. Here's what he said will happen if this Build Back Better plan is passed.
3: Here's what I know. If we make these investments, there will be no stopping the American people or America. We will own the future. Travis, will this help Americans own the
2: future? I don't think it will. We're talking about, again, you know, massive amount of government spending, um, you know as as just bogging down our economy more and more, putting America's focus as a policy priority on domestic entitlement programs, growing government. I don't see how any of that helps us own our future especially when you look around the world now, confronting the myriad challenges that we're facing after we've left Afghanistan. America's reputation is in tatters. We can't be trusted in the eyes of many allies. China's on the rise. And you're talking about us owning the future. We're not. We're not owning the future. We're in decline when you look around the world. And here we're focusing inwardly by compounding the amount of government spending that's already taken place, ignoring The moral issues which we need to address as a country, we're not going to own the future. There are a lot of things that need to be addressed, and this is not one of them to help us own the future. To
1: be sure, this package, and the way President Biden is speaking about it, claims paints a very clear picture of divergent opinions about what the future should look like. And at the end of the program, we're actually going to talk about the worldview implications of this. But, Travis, uh, with you, I want to change the subject a little bit uh, because just yesterday, a federal judge stayed an order. At least he said that the uh, service members, military service members and federal employees who have appealed for a religious exemption cannot be fired While their religious exemption process is carried out, what's the significance of that?
2: Yes, I do think it's significant. A a federal district court in the District of Columbia issued a a short order in a case in which there's recently been a big, a, a large complaint filed by a number of plaintiffs against the government's vaccine mandate. Uh, These plaintiffs include federal employees, uh, civilian employees, military and non-military, with a host of of claims against the government, um, claiming that there have been legal violations under uh, the the Biden administration vaccine mandates. Now, the complaint's been filed. What the judge did is issue an order that said, look, these employees who are bringing this case cannot be Uh, disciplined, suffer adverse action while their religious exemptions are being processed, number one, and number two, while their appeals are being carried out. So what the order does is it puts on hold any action against the employees. It is positive. It's not the end of the case. The case still has to uh, be uh, adjudicated uh, on the merits, and we have to get a ruling from the courts. But um, I do think this starts the process of you know, this is, um, it's significant because we know there's been a lot of discussion on this issue. Obviously it's quite a significant complaint. We'll have to keep an eye on the case and, um, we will, I don't think it's the end of legal challenges to the, the mandates. Uh, we'll see what happens, but for now the employees are protected while these case, this case is, um, is, is, uh, funneled through the courts. Okay. And
1: Travis, uh, one final subject I want to cover with you, the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, we have been tracking this at FRC. It's moving along in the process, receiving bipartisan support. What's the latest? What are your concerns?
2: Yeah, so the NDAA authorizing um, spending for military programs, a big legislative vehicle, obviously on an annual basis. Uh, the um, you know, in addition to the reconciliation, Discussion and um, legislative vehicle moving through Congress in the coming months. Um, The NDAA has has to pass by the end of this calendar year. Now, the concerning provision for us, and as a pro-family organization, is a provision that's in the House version that's already passed the House that requires women to register for the Selective Service, thus putting them in a position where they could be drafted. Um, This is significant because we need to make sure that our daughters are not drafted, are not forced to serve. If they want to serve, they're free to. They shouldn't be forced to. And that's something we need to address in the Senate by striking that provision when that bill moves through the Senate. And the NDAA and the requirement that women would be uh, forced
1: to register for the Selective Service just more of the trend that we see of trying to eliminate the distinction between men and women and the way we treat men and women or do we recognize that they are different and significantly so so we will continue to track that issue because it is important and travis weber appreciate your time and updating it updating us on it today thanks Th- for being with thank us. thank you and coming up Uh, More about the military, Taiwan and China. What is happening? How concerned should the U.S. be and should the U.S. get involved? We'll talk about it with General Boykin when we come back.
4: With
5: tech censorship on the rise, we've increasingly seen the cancellation of conservatives and Christians. At Family Research Council, we want to be proactive about making sure big tech doesn't completely silence us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, if we are canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone by signing up for our text alerts. Just text STAND to 67742. Again, text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for what's right and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742
0: and be the most informed person you know. Join us for FRC and FRC Action's inaugural Pray Vote Stand Summit. In light of the growing opposition our culture has expressed against biblical principles and the truth of God's Word, we've launched Pray Vote Stand Summit to equip and encourage Christians to respond to this opposition from a biblical worldview. We will address issues such as protecting the unborn, the importance of the nuclear family, domestic and international religious liberty, developments in our nation's education system, and more. We see the need for the restoration of a biblical foundation in our nation and the necessity to equip Christians to effectively engage the culture and understand current events through a biblical lens. Join us at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia from October 6th through the 8th for the Prayvote Stand Summit. Register online at prayvotestand.org summit or by calling 877-372-2808.
6: More than ever before, Christians need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word and be prepared to articulate them in a winsome manner. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. By applying the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to a wide range of relevant issues, including voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality, the experts at the Center have provided resources to help Christians live by a biblical worldview. To understand why scripture must be authoritative and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. Access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series at frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including their latest blogs, op-eds, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm, sitting for Tony today. I remind you that the website is Perkins.com. In an exclusive interview with CNN earlier this week, the leader of Taiwan said that threat from China is growing every day and that the island is a beacon of democracy that needs to be defended to uphold faith in democratic values worldwide. And last week, When asked during a CNN town hall if the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked, President Biden said that we would. But even if the rest of the Biden administration was on the same page as the president, there are concerns that the U.S. military is losing its edge over the Chinese military. Joining me now to talk about this is FRC's Executive Vice President, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who was one of the original members of the U.S. Army's Delta Force. He also spent the last four years of his 36-year military career serving as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence General. Thanks for coming to the program today.
3: I'm glad to be with you, Joseph.
1: Now, what's your sense of the conflict between China and Taiwan and what the U.S. should be doing there?
3: Yeah, I go back to, I think it was 1979 when Jimmy Carter really changed uh, everything with regards to Taiwan and and U.S. policy towards Taiwan. When he recognized uh, Beijing but uh, removed our embassy from from Taiwan. And at that time, there was an agreement that we would continue to supply military material and training to the Taiwanese. But there was never any uh, firm policy that uh, regarding America coming to their aid militarily in terms of using U.S. forces. So when the president said that uh, he would uh, he would go to war, basically, uh, over Taiwan, uh, he was outside of a long-standing established policy. Now, I, I do think that the uh, the leader of Taiwan was absolutely correct. It is a a democratic uh, form of government there, and it is something that, uh, a, as a uh, freedom-loving people, we need to be prepared to support them. But uh, I will tell you, I I don't think anything's going to happen at least uh, until the. This time next year at the earliest, and that is because the Chinese Communist Party has their uh, meeting every five years, and they go into a a long, drawn-out meeting to determine who's going to be the head of state, as well as what their foreign policy is going to be. And I don't think that they'll do anything until that's over, but I do think they'll make a run on Taiwan before Joe Biden leaves the White House.
1: President Biden has been very committed to ending foreign military engagement. And we saw that play out in Afghanistan in a very troubling way. And all of that uh, chaos was really said to be justified because of the importance of removing, extracting ourselves from other m- military engagements. Is, does, is his position then with Taiwan inconsistent with what we've seen him do in Afghanistan?
3: yeah he i I don't think the guy first of all when they asked him the question, Would he defend taiwan and he and he came back with a knee jerk reaction, I think there is an inconsistency with that response and and the reality on the ground. I don't think that he uh would be inclined at all to use military forces to defend Taiwan.
1: Well, we certainly hope it doesn't come to that. Other news in the last several days of China's testing this hypersonic missile technology, which is extremely concerning, uh, given their hostility to us. Is there any concern that the U.S. is losing its competitive advantage advantage militarily with respect to China?
3: Well, I think that's exactly what the outgoing uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, has said here in the last few days. Uh, As he prepares to retire after a 40-year career, I think he laid out uh, in in pretty understandable terms how the United States has lost its competitive edge, particularly with China, but also with Russia. And Both of those have hypersonic weapons. And keep in mind that these hypersonic weapons, uh, missiles as well as aircraft, um, they fly at five times the speed of sound, and they can fly very low and for extended period of time. And, uh, and they're very hard to track. And we right now, it's questionable as to whether we actually have some kind of missile defense system that would uh, neutralize them. So we have lost our competitive edge. We started down the, uh, the hypersonic uh, route. Uh, We had some setbacks and we basically just quit, just got out of the program. And now we're obviously back in and we're trying to catch up now. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Not if, not if we're going to maintain a superpower status, that is not the way things are supposed to be done.
1: Now, unfortunately we don't have the time to really drill into the why of, of why we might be losing our competitive advantage, but there is not other concerning developments in Syria. Tell us what's happening there.
3: Yeah. Um, one of our bases there in Syria that was uh, really that was established in uh, 2016 uh, was uh, attacked the other day by at least five drones. Uh, now, this base uh, was a base from which we trained what we called at the time the Free Syrian Army. It was the people that would oppose Bashar al-Assad and uh, we went through an extensive training program there, which was basically a miserable failure on its own. And, w- and we had, no, you know, after millions of dollars, we had only a handful of people that uh, were actually willing and, and able to go out and fight against the Assad regime. But we do still have U.S. forces there. It's in south, uh, the southern part of Syria, and it was attacked by five uh, missiles uh, or five drones and no one knows for sure who it was, but you can bet that it was uh, at least sponsored by Iran. These things were not launched from Iran. And most likely, they were launched by Hezbollah. Uh, that would be the most likely uh, entity that would have done this on behalf of Iran. Iran.
1: Well, these are concerning developments on different sides of the world. Uh, We really hope and pray that they do not get worse. But uh, we have no promise of that. So we want to be in a position to be able to do what is necessary. And unfortunately, uh, our confidence in that seems to be uh, weakening. But General Boykin, we appreciate you coming to inform us today about all of this. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, Joseph. Glad to be with you.
1: And coming up after the break, uh, we're gonna talk about another troubling issue, uh, the way young people are being forced into gender reassignment legislation as well that is being proposed that would stop that from happening. We'll talk about all of it when we come back right after the break. Stay with us.
7: Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the app store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app.
8: Have you ever tried to read the Bible daily but struggled to get in a groove? It can be hard, especially if you don't know where to start. Or how to understand and apply what you've read. Or maybe it's just that doing it alone has made it too easy to give up. Well, let me encourage you. You don't have to do this daily discipline alone. You can join Family Research Council's Stand on the Word two-year Bible reading plan. God's Word is necessary in our lives. So much so that Christ said we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. That is why we want to read the Bible daily, and we'd love for you to join us so we can stay grounded in God's truth and grow closer to God together. Our hope is that this plan will help you be transformed by God's Word by reading and hearing it daily. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. That's frc.org slash Bible.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm. So Glad that you are with us. Last week, a new bill was introduced in the Ohio House that would protect vulnerable minors dealing with gender dys- dysphoria from experimental procedures that cause psychological trauma. HB 454, or the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act, is similar to Arkansas legislation with the same name, which a federal judge late July stopped from going into effect until litigation is resolved. And our hope here at FRC is that more lawmakers will follow suit and bring this important legislation to their states. Joining me now to explain why the SAFE Act is necessary is Dr. Roger Hyatt, a child and adolescent psychiatrist with nearly 30 years of experience. Dr. Hyatt, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you. Now, you have, again, 30 years of experience, and you were part of the conversation about this legislation in your home state of Arkansas. Tell us why you think this is important.
4: Well, the overwhelming evidence is that if uh, children are left to uh, sort things out on their own without pressure from the ex- outside, that the vast, vast majority, in the 85 to 90 percent of them, will desist from this issue and re-embrace the gender of their birth. But what's happening is that these um, interventions, these hormone uh, blockers, these uh, cross-gender hormones uh, and the social transitioning are are forcing, they're really bottlenecking kids, getting them stuck into a transgender identity, which dooms them for a suicide rate 19 times the general population up into adulthood so what is the biggest
1: harm you see in the way this issue is being treated right now
4: well absolutely i think the the biggest harm is 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 the sort of the notion that that the compassionate thing is to give a child what they want and it's somehow that that's the compassionate thing if you carry that out and you have a 3-year-old child and you're you're walking down the sidewalk on a busy street they decide that they'd like to play out in the street that the compassionate thing would be to let them do so when in reality that's that's exactly the opposite
1: now you deal with minors on a range of issues and certainly most of the the children that you that you counsel are not dealing with gender dysphoria is there pressure to treat children who struggle with gender dysphoria differently than you would counsel them if they were dealing with something else?
4: Well, absolutely. This pressure uh, begins with the uh, social, social transitioning, using a pers- particular pronouns, nicknames, and so forth, uh, and trying to validate a child's uh, perceived gender identity from the get-go, and really it gets in the way of the actual treatment of the underlying issues, the depression, the post-traumatic stress disorder, the suicidal thoughts. Uh, when uh, when medical professionals go down the road of, of validating the gender issue or letting it be uh, front and center with the child, what happens really is that, that you just fail to address the actual issues that are the reason why they're in your care. So I've made it my practice to totally abandon the use of personal pronouns with all of my patients, not just my transgender identity patients, but uh, all of my patients so that I can avoid that particular issue. But it it, it definitely gets in the way.
1: You brought up the issue of suicide and one of the most common, if not the most common arguments made in debates around this issue is that if children are not affirmed and not allowed to do what they uh, want to do in changing their gender or think they might want to do, that they will end up killing themselves. What's your response to that, to that argument?
4: Well, the evidence is, is clear that, that uh, individuals who have a transgender identity have an extremely high suicide risk. And that risk is about 19 times that of the general population. But the reality is that uh, socially transitioning, engaging uh, in, in the, the hormone blockers and the, the cross-sex hormones, even the surgeries, does nothing to, to long-term uh, improve the, the chances that the child would, su- would commit suicide. I think what people focus on is that in the very, very short term, uh, in the first weeks or months of of a child being involved in this kind of activity that the child perceives it as a positive the child will report that they 're feeling better um, what the reality is is that that they once they discover that uh, changing one 's identity from or I should say changing one 's gender from one to the other is is impossible that it does not happen that the only thing one can do is is pass, if you will, as one gender versus the other, and that the, the only way to maintain any semblance of that is to continue to medicalize themselves for the rest of their lives.
1: And, and you have talked about the financial incentives that that medicalization, lifelong medicalization results in. It's more than se- more than a it's a seven figure number for minors who change it. They will continually be under medical care, which is one of the things that requires us to carefully examine uh, how this issue is being treated. Uh, Dr. Roger Hyatt, we are out of time for today, but we do appreciate you being with us very much. And for your uh, participation as well in in our summit with legislators from around the country this week. Appreciate your courage and your willingness to inform us on this. Thanks for being with us. No problem. And I did there mention the SAFE Act Summit that uh, FRC hosted this week. And Dr. Roger Hyatt met with dozens of legislators from around the country, informing them about this most sensitive and most important of issues. Coming up after the break... Let's go, Brandon, is a phenomenon now. Should Christians be participating? How do we think about that? In addition, uh, the life of Linda is something that the Biden administration is talking about that tells us something about their worldview. We'll talk about both of those things coming up in our worldview segment with David Boss. Stay with us.
5: Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to influence public policy and culture, look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program that prepares and equips students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview trainings, students will grow in personal and professional development.
0: is real biblical masculinity lost forever in this culture of gender confusion there are too few examples of godly manhood so where can men husbands and fathers find a model of godly manhood leadership and strength in this culture try our stand courageous men's ministry we seek to help men develop a strong biblical character cultivate positive habits Build and rebuild relationships and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do and will invest in unpacking our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have a generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at standcourageous.com. With tech censorship on the rise,
5: we've increasingly seen the cancellation of conservatives and Christians. At Family Research Council, we want to be proactive about making sure big tech doesn't completely silence us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, if we are canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone by signing up for our text alerts. Just text STAND to 67742. Again, text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for what's right and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed
1: person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph, back home, sitting in the County. Tony will be back with you on Monday. The phrase, let's go, Brandon, has been a viral internet sensation over the past couple of weeks. Inspiring memes and even a song that hit number one on the iTunes hip hop chart. In fact, as of yesterday, both of the top songs on the iTunes chart were called Let's Go Brandon. And in case you've missed it in Tony's comments earlier this week, the trending phrase originated from an NBC reporter's interview with NASCAR driver Brandon Brown following his victory at Alabama's Talladega Super Speedway earlier this month. During the interview, the crowd was chanting, well, something unsavory directed toward President Biden. But the reporter either misheard the chants or made an on-the-fly editorial change when she realized what was being said. We can't play what the crowd was chanting, but here's an edited clip of, here's an edited version of the clip that launched a thousand memes. Oh my God, it's just such an unbelievable moment.
8: Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the the crowd, let's go, Brandon. They weren't
1: saying, let's go, Brandon. But how should we, as Christians, be thinking about this trend, and how should we be responding? Joining me now to talk about this and more is David Claussen, Director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, welcome back. Happy Friday.
9: Happy Friday. Great to be with you, Joseph.
1: Well, let's go, Brandon. Tony did talk about it a little bit this week um he shared some of his thoughts it's the worldview segment i think it's appropriate that we talk about this uh we don't have to mention i'm going to assume most of our audience knows what let's go brandon is let's go brandon is a euphemism for now how should christians be thinking about this
9: yeah, it's an important question, Joseph, because this has been going on now, I think, for a couple of weeks now. And, you know, I'm on social media and Twitter and Instagram and you, you've seen it and people are making humorous jokes about it. And uh, then it broke out into football stadiums, especially kind of in the south, uh, whole tens of thousands of people ch- chanting this phrase. And at first, I think my first reaction, ah, that's kind of humorous. That's kind of silly. Uh, but the more I thought about it. Um, I did have some problems with it. I think, you know, FRC President Tony Perkins mentioned this uh, earlier in the week on the show. But this is emblematic, I think, of a coarsening of our political discourse, uh, disrespect uh, towards those who are in leadership and as Christians, as those who Paul tells us uh, in 1 Timothy 2 to be praying for our leaders uh, to be seeking their welfare, uh, because if our leaders are doing well, we'll find welfare we should seek, uh, you know, uh, to be able to live peaceably among men, I do think this is problematic. And even if some people might kind of smile and laugh at this, I don't think this is something that Christians uh, should participate in. In this Sermon on the
1: Mount, one of the very specific commands that Jesus gives us is to bless those who curse you. And I think it is difficult to dispute that what is happening in Let's Go Brandon is not an example of blessing anyone, much less those who curse you. Does that settle the matter for you?
9: I think I think that is a really important point, you know, Joseph. Yeah, don't bless those who, or don't curse those who curse you. Bless those, um, you know. I know conservatives who around this country, a lot of Christians, have issues with policies uh, that the Biden administration has put forward. Um, but again, just because we disagree with someone's policies and proposals uh, doesn't mean we need to go after their character and kind of descend to that level of coarseness. And you know, J- Joseph, I know people will say, well, Donald Trump was one who was coarsening our political discourse and it's true president trump said things that uh, i wish he wouldn't have said obviously joe biden himself's no you know paragon of civil discourse but uh, when i just don't think christians should be participating let's not lower the bar let's try to raise it and meet that standard i think that you just rightly pointed out that jesus sets for us in the sermon on the mount
1: And I think it is bad for us culturally if we have this habit. And I think it has become a habit uh, partisanly. Uh, whoever is not in power in the White House. Shows an incredible amount of disrespect and disregard yeah. for the person that they did not vote for, who occupies that office. And I'm not sure it serves anyone well if the Democrats are just nasty and brutal to the Republicans, and then when the when the uh, Democrats get in office. The Republicans are nasty and brutal to the Democrat who happens to sit that in, in that office. Part of our, our nation's uh, unity and our ability to survive really does depend in many respects on our ability to respect the office of the presidency because of the critical role that it plays. Do you think that we have the ability to influence that by the way we talk and think about who's in the
9: office? Uh, I think we can, Joseph, and I think that Christians ought to model that. Uh, I think we can actually, I'm just thinking about, uh, we can model that in our own families. Uh, We can model that in our churches. Uh, How often have you been to church and you've heard maybe someone uh, say an unkind word about the pastor after sermon or a Sunday school teacher or an elder, I think even in our own churches and our own families, we can begin modeling what it looks like uh, to speak respectfully about those who God has put in positions of authority. And I've, you and I have talked about this passage before on the show, Joseph, but Romans 13, you know, says that government, our leaders are put, they're ordained, uh, they're, they're put into place by God. Um, and that, that's a good thing. So Christians, the posture we should, it doesn't mean we agree with every policy decision that those in Authority are going to make uh, the, the current administration. There's a whole host of things that we can disagree with, but I think that uh, as Christians, uh, the first thing we should be saying about a, something like this is that we should give honor to honor, give honor to whom honor is due, and even if you don't agree with who's uh, in the Oval Office, honor is due that person.
1: I think that's a really important point. The temptation in our public policy is to make our policy difference very personal. And I think this is one uh, piece of evidence that suggests that it becomes personal with those we disagree. So we are willing to, to you know, chant things repeatedly that really are profane and inappropriate. And we certainly wouldn't want them said about ourselves or our mother or other people that we cared about. So we have to think about what we are saying and the broader message that that is sending. But there's one other point I wanted to mention, David, before we get into another subject about this, because in addition to the The theological conversation that I think is uh, important for Christians to think about. First, of course, is how should we do? We don't just follow cultural trends, but it is important to note a cultural trend when it happens, because I think this cultural trend could have significant political uh, impact for one very specific reason, and that is that the Part of the narrative, perception in politics often is reality. Hmm. And one thing that has always been a goal of the left is to have a caricature of the right. Yeah. That is, they want, when you think of a Republican or a conservative, they want you to immediately think of Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell or some other old white guy. That's kind of their perception. But these songs, both called "Let's Go Brandon," are rap songs rapped by not white people. They are at the top of the charts. That that says something about who is listening to the music, and it also is going to provide. It's going to change the perception of who it is that's criticizing the president, who it is that is. Uh, the face of conservative messaging, like it or not, whether it's appropriate or not, this is a right wing movement. This is a right wing perspective, this this let's go brandon phenomenon. And the fact that it is coming not from old white guys, but from young black guys who are rappers psychologically, I think, is going to make a difference in the way that that this lands with people, particularly young people, because I think it is going to change, not necessarily intentionally. And I don't think this is why these songs were written. I just think this is the way that culture works and the way that art and entertainment and media influences culture is they are hearing this message, not from a press release, not from a politician. In a suit and tie, but from an R&B artist. Do you agree that this is going to impact the way people think about this message?
9: No, I think so. I think that's kind of perceptive um, to even note that, Joseph, because I think you're right uh, that this is kind of a cultural movement. We're seeing this being chanted in football stadiums and at NASCAR races, uh, but. You're, you're like you just met these two songs that have skyrocketed up the charts. I think you said they're number one and two right now on the iTunes top hundred or whatever the list is. It, it it speaks to the fact that this is a, a cultural movement. And I think it also, Joseph, and we'll probably get into this in the next part of the segment. It, it speaks to this growing unpopularity uh, of the to the policies of this administration. Uh, it's not just old white people who are upset at some of these policies. Uh, there is a growing groundswell of people who are up upset at policies that this administration is beginning, uh, that has been pursuing now since they took office. And I think uh, that discontentment that we're seeing uh, about these policies is now manifesting itself in some of the cultural messaging like you find in now these popular rap songs. Now, David, I'm going to switch
1: topics, uh, kind of, but I don't think entirely, because I want to talk about some other messaging that's happening culturally and the worldview implications of this. The White House uh, this week released a cartoon story advertising campaign promoting the Build Back Better plan. And it features the life of Linda. And I want to go through what this is, because it really starts, it's this cradle to grave uh, concept of Linda. And really, I think the worldview part of this is it It paints a picture of what the good life is, what the White House thinks the good life should be for Americans. And it starts at the very beginning, and it shows Linda uh, appears to be working in some kind of a warehouse. And Linda is a working mother in Peoria, Illinois. She works at a local manufacturing facility. She makes $40,000 a year. She's pregnant with her son, Leo then the life of linda proceeds she has leo once leo was born linda receives child a child tax credit of three hundred dollars per month which is thirty six hundred dollars annually to help cover essential costs like groceries rent and medicine then we move on leo is growing up and the campaign says as leo grows up the government helps cover the costs for his daycare guaranteeing that linda doesn't need to pay more than seven percent of her income on child care now Leo continues to grow. When Leo turns three, he attends a high-quality pre-K program for free. Why? Because Build Back Better is paying for it. Of course, that is, uh, that's what they want us all to believe. But Leo continues to grow, as does his mother. And when Leo leaves high school, he is able to enroll. And, of course, we're assuming a, a lifetime in public education that he's just completed. When he leaves high school, he is able to enroll in a community college. Thanks to extended Pell grants and investments in community. Colleges. We move on, and Leo gets a job. Thanks to his community college training, Leo lands a good paying job, union job, as a a good paying union job, the emphasis is there, as a wind turbine technician. Leo's job is one of 4 million new jobs a year that are supported by President Biden's economic plan. And then finally, we get to the end of the life of Linda, and later in life, Linda needs home care and it says hearing care, but I think they mean health care. Thanks to President Biden's plan, Linda can access affordable hearing care. I also think it still says means health care through Medicare. And Leo is able to afford at home elder care for his mom. So we see here this beautiful life of Linda that Joe Biden and the Build Back Better plan have created for Linda, which begins with... Um, Child tax credits when Leo is born and ends with government-subsidized elder care for Linda as Leo is an adult.
9: What do you learn from this? Well, I think you learn a couple of things. But one, uh, Joseph, you learned that I think someone in the White House a couple of weeks ago – uh, said, hey, do you remember that President, Biden nine, or President Obama nine years ago had a similar idea uh, that some people watching us might remember the life of Julia, which was a similar idea of this single mother who raises her kid, uh, depends on government assistance every point of the way. They, they were doing this in support of Obamacare. Uh, this is the exact same thing with the, the, the life of Linda. Uh, every step of her life, she needs the government. She's dependent on programs. She's dependent on handouts. Noticeably absent from this conception of the good life is a father figure, a husband. Uh, There's no male figure at all. There's no uh, church. There's no community support. It's just at every step of her life, Linda has the government. So it's really this collectivist worldview that I think is the message you get from the life of Linda. And that's one
1: of many that I think it's important to drive home is as the Biden administration encourages people to think about what they can do for their life. Linda has no husband. Leo has no father, and this is supposed to be an idyllic understanding of what life should be like. And in reality, those are a huge hole in Leo's life. And Linda needs her son to have a father. And but but their version of their vision of life uh, is absent a father. Is it wrong for Christians to uh, take government support?
9: No, I don't think it's wrong, Joseph. I think there's certain supports that that is helpful, that's needed, depending on circumstances. Uh, But I think that the Build Back Better plan as pictured by the life of Linda. The the kind of the liberal utopia that it's painting for us is one of complete dependency on the government that uh, undermines rights. It undermines liberties uh, that I think too many Americans are taking for granted, which is why a picture like this might be compelling to a lot of our friends and neighbors. I've seen or I've read
1: parodies of the 23rd 23rd Psalm, which starts with, uh, not the Lord is my shepherd, but the government is my shepherd, I shall not want. And of course, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with communities helping each other and, and governments doing that as well. What is wrong and what is damaging and what I think we need to underscore in terms of the worldview here is that there is a movement in the world and certainly in the country that wants you to depend entirely upon the government for the good life and christians should know and must understand that that will inevitably disappointing the government is not our shepherd the lord is our shepherd if we look to government for to be our shepherd we will be disappointed david clausen thanks so much for your time today thank you joseph That's the program that we have for today, folks. Thank you for joining us. Remember, the Lord is your shepherd, not the government. We'll see you next time on Washington Watch.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported.